like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, it has been a joy to be here this weekend, to be able to participate in the conference on family worship, to talk about the importance of our children and the importance of passing on to the next generation the wondrous deeds of the Lord. We're continuing on that topic this morning by looking at a psalm that focuses our attention on this very thing. Psalm 78 this morning. It's a rather long psalm. Have no fear. We're not going to do a verse-by-verse exposition through every verse in the psalm. But we are going to look at what is the central focus and message of this psalm. And I hope that it will be a challenge and an encouragement, really a hope-filled encouragement to us in what really are dark days within our, cu- our culture, our country, and our world. But what we're facing in our culture and in our culture, uh, country, and our situation today really is no different than what the people of Israel were facing in the context of this very psalm, Psalm 78. Psalm 78 in its entirety really recounts Israel's history. We're going to focus our attention this morning on the first eight verses, which are really the central command of this psalm. That's where we're going to spend most of our time today. But the remainder of this psalm, after the verses that we're going to look at, the first eight verses, recount events in Israel's history. But it is a particular recounting with a specific purpose in mind. And so it's important for us as we set the context for the first eight verses of this psalm to recognize the purpose. What is the purpose of all of the history that this psalmist recounts in Psalm 78? Well, I want you to notice, again, by way of setting the context here, the specific subject of this history. And the subject of the history is introduced in the first phrase of verse 9, which begins the historical section. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 tells us that the focus on the history of this psalm is on the children of Ephraim. So the history here begins with a focus on the tribe of Ephraim, but then look at how the psalm ends in verse 68 of Psalm 78. The psalm shifts over the course of the psalm from the tribe of Ephraim, which is the focus in verse 9, to verse 68 with a focus on he chose the tribe of Judah. So there's a shift in this psalm. Why is is the psalmist focusing on Judah at the end of the psalm when at the beginning of the psalm he had a focus on Ephraim? Well, this is exactly a question that the people of Israel may have been asking themselves. We today know that the tribe of Judah is the tribe chosen as the source of Israel's kings, and it is the source of the Davidic line, and the tribe of Judah is the source of the very Messiah himself. But we often forget that Judah wasn't originally the tribe with special status, originally the tribe of Ephraim had enjoyed the special status of God's blessing. Now, who was Ephraim? Ephraim was the younger of the two sons of of Joseph. And just before Israel died, he blessed Joseph's sons, and he gave the greater blessing to Ephraim. 
He purposefully crossed his arms when he blessed Joseph's two sons so that Ephraim got the blessing instead of the older brother, Manasseh. We find that in Genesis chapter 48. So Ephraim enjoyed a special blessing from the Lord, including Joseph's inheritance. When the Israelites began settling in the promised land, Joshua, who was an Ephraimite himself, gave Ephraim the most desirable allotment of land, an agriculturally fertile region in the central highlands of the promised land. Ephraim enjoyed a special blessing. And because of Ephraim's special status and the fact that Israel's leader, Joshua, was an Ephraimite, the tribe quickly became the dominant tribe and the central focus in much of the book of Judges. The great prophet Samuel was born from the tribe of Ephraim. The region became a political and military center of the nation. In fact, it was in the city of Shiloh in Ephraim that God originally chose to dwell in his tabernacle. And so here was the tribe of Ephraim, which had received the greater blessing from Jacob and the inheritance of, jo of Joseph, this tribe that had been allotted the most desirable region in the promised land and whose central city God chose for the place of his tabernacle. Ephraim was really the heartland of Israel. This was a people that had received great blessing from God, great advantages, great prosperity, great wealth, and even the presence of God himself. And so the question is, why don't we hear about Ephraim anymore after they received this blessing from the Lord? Why didn't the kings of Israel come from this honored tribe? Why was the tabernacle later moved out of Shiloh to Gilgal, and why was the temple later built in Jerusalem? Well, Psalm 78 specifically refers to this. Look down at verse 60. The psalmist writes, God forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, that's in Ephraim, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. Why did he do that? And most importantly, why didn't the Messiah come from this blessed tribe? Why did the tribe of Judah receive the honored status, according to verse 68, that once had belonged to Ephraim? In fact, in Revelation chapter 7, when the tribes of Israel are listed, Ephraim is not even mentioned. Why is that? Have you ever wondered? Well, this would have been a natural question for the people of Israel, and that is exactly the question that lies in the background of Psalm 78. Why did God shift his blessing from the tribe of Ephraim to the tribe of Judah? And so getting at the heart of the purpose of this psalm and the first eight verses, it is important for us to take just a few moments and discover why God forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, why he ultimately shifted his special blessing from Ephraim to Judah. Well, first, consider what we find in Joshua chapter 16. 
In Joshua 16, we find a recounting of the allotment of land that had been given to the tribe of Ephraim, and the first five verses describe the boundaries of the land and and this region that was rich in soil and fruitful in vineyards. But listen to what Joshua says in verse 10. He says, however, they, that is the Ephraimites, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. You see, the first thing that led to the downfall of Ephraim is that they disobeyed the clear command of God to completely wipe out all of the pagan inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And Ephraim failed to do what God commanded. Instead, they saw a more profitable alternative. They let the pagans live, and they put the pagans to work. But folks, God wants to be obeyed, and God's concern was for the purity of his worship. He didn't want his people worshiping as the pagans worshiped, on their high places, using their altars. And so he had commanded the people of Israel to completely wipe out all of the pagan people from the promised land and to destroy all of their sacred places and ways of worship. But the people of Israel in general, and particularly the tribe of Ephraim as the central leading tribe, disobeyed the clear commands of the Lord. They took the pragmatic route. Instead of separating themselves from the pagans, they integrated themselves within the pagan peoples. At first, Ephraim remained dominant over those pagan people. The pagans paid tribute to them. But Scripture is clear When God's people integrate themselves into the pagan world, the values and the customs and the practices and even the worship of the pagans will begin to influence God's people. And that's exactly what happened to the tribe of Ephraim. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, we find an account of one of Israel's battles with the Philistines, a battle that, uh, that, that occurred in Ephraim between Shiloh and the Philistine people of Aphek, And after losing the battle, the elders of the people of Ephraim suggested that they take the Ark of the Covenant with them to win. Let's take the Ark with us. Maybe that will be a good luck charm. God had never told them to do that. In fact, God had commanded that the Ark remain in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. But this idea to bring the ark with them into war came directly out of the pagan playbook. It was common for pagan nations to have religious talismans that they would bring with them into battle as sort of a good luck charm, and that's exactly what the Ephraimites intended. They thought if they took the ark out of the tabernacle of Shiloh and brought it with them to battle, then surely God would help them. And of course, you know what happened. They lost miserably And the Philistines captured the ark, and Shiloh was completely destroyed, and later the tabernacle was moved to Gilgal. And by the time of the New Testament, the descendants of the tribe of Ephraim had become what we know today as the Samaritans, who had intermarried with pagan people. They had integrated pagan customs with their own and even created a new form of religion that combined elements of Jewish worship with pagan elements. You see, what ultimately led to Ephraim's downfall was a failure to forsake the world. 
Instead, they integrated themselves into the world. They adopted the world's customs and even the world's worship. Look in Psalm 78 at how this psalm describes Ephraim's problem. Look at verse 10. They, again, the people of Ephraim, did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to His law. They forgot His works and the wonders that He had shown them. The people of Ephraim forgot the works of the Lord. That was their central problem. This is why they disobeyed the Lord, why they lost God's blessing, why their place of status in Israel shifted to Judah. They forgot the works of the Lord. And so the rest of Psalm 78 is a reminder of all of the, Lord, of the Lord's works in bringing the people out of Egypt, in protecting them through the wilderness, in punishing them for their sin, in showing them great mercy by bringing them back to himself, in showing the people of Israel great blessing despite their disobedience, in bringing them to the promised land, and in driving out all of the pagan nations. And ultimately, Psalm 78 is a reminder of what led to their destruction. Look at verse 67. Again, God rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. Now, with all of that tragedy in mind, let's give our attention to the opening verses of this psalm, because they provide, these first eight verses provide the key to preventing the same sort of tragedy that happened to the people of Ephraim from happening to the people of God today. How can we avoid the tragedy that happened to Ephraim? The first eight verses tell us. The psalmist gives us the solution with an express command as to what we ought to do as God's people to prevent the kind of tragic downfall experienced by Israel generally in its history and the tribe of Ephraim specifically. What is that solution? What hope do we have today? Look at verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. You see, the hope for preventing the tragedy that Ephraim experienced is found in our children. The solution that the psalmist gives us here is to faithfully tell to the coming generation what God has done and His mighty works. This is the best way to ensure the continued faith of the people of God. This is how many of us, perhaps most of us, came to faith and in, in, in knowledge and love of the Lord. Some of you may not have grown up with Christian parents and you came to know the Lord through another Christian influence. But for many of us, our testimony is what the psalmist describes in verse 3. What we have heard and known, our fathers have told us. Many of us came to know the wondrous deeds of the Lord because our parents told us about them. And that is the key the psalmist is saying here. 
We must tell the coming generation about the Lord. But the question is, why would the psalmist say in verse 4, we will not hide them from our children? I mean, who would actually hide the things of the Lord from their children? The implication here is that Ephraim hid God's word from their children, and there is absolutely a similar danger today that we could hide God from our children. How could we do that? How could we fail to pass on the wondrous works of the Lord to our children? Well, let me suggest a few ways that we might actually do this. First, many times parents assume that that it is the responsibility of other spiritual leaders to tell the coming generations the wondrous things of the Lord. And so we as parents, thinking that it's someone else's responsibility, we forsake our own responsibility to do so. Now we're going to talk more in a moment, and I emphasized yesterday the importance of the church in doing this. But the responsibility is given to tell the coming generation primarily to fathers, to parents, not priests, not elders, not judges, not prophets. No, our fathers have told us, and we must not hide them from our children. This was a command given to fathers as part of the great confession of faith in Israel. We looked at this tomorrow, or yesterday for those who were here, the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you shall tell this to your children. You shall teach them diligently the laws of the Lord and the commands of the Lord. You shall teach these things diligently to your children. And this is exactly the emphasis of the New Testament. Fathers, Paul admonishes, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Not primarily pastors, not Sunday school teachers, not not anyone else. No, fathers are to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You see, telling the next generation the wonderful deeds of the Lord cannot be passed off to anyone else. Parents, we must make this a regular, faithful part of our everyday home life, lest our children forget, like Ephraim's children did. But there's another way that we sometimes hide the things of the Lord from our children. I've found that there is sometimes a danger, especially in good, doctrinally rich churches like mine and like this one, where we hear faithfully the preached word, where we believe in the the sovereign work of God in salvation, and we rightly fear manipulating or, or, or abusing our children and sort of emotionally pushing them into a decision. It's right that we should avoid that. But sometimes what happens is that in in a right attempt to avoid manipulating our children, we don't actually tell them the wondrous things of the Lord. We don't actually preach the gospel to our children. I've noticed that we are sometimes more fervent in our evangelism towards others outside the church than we are to our very own children, the unbelievers that God has put into our homes. Parents, how will our children call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall our children believe in him of whom they have not heard? 
And how shall they hear unless we tell them? We must regularly, faithfully tell our children the things of the Lord, warn them that they are sinners and they are in danger of eternal punishment, that the only way of salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ, and whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we must compel them to repent and believe in Christ with just as much fervency as we do with other believers, other unbelievers. And though we absolutely should be careful not to manipulate our children, we should be careful not to give them the idea that just because they have Christian parents or attend church that they are Christians, we have to avoid that. It is nevertheless absolutely true that our children do have a spiritual advantage that is not given to children in unbelieving families, and that's okay. God has ordained that. God has put these children into our Christian homes. This is one of the reasons that there is a clear pattern in biblical history and in the rest of church history of whole families coming to faith in Christ. This is not a guarantee But because God ordains the means of salvation and people come to faith through the Word of God, regular exposure to God's Word through 18 years of a child's life is a wonderful God-ordained means of salvation. We must preach the gospel to our children and call them to repent. But then there's a third way that many well-meaning Christian parents often hide the things of the Lord from their children. Again, it is rooted in an otherwise correct belief. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. We believe that if our children are truly saved, then they will always remain saved. Amen. That is a biblical teaching. But then we sometimes, with that in mind, have a sort of cavalier, almost fatalistic view of the world, sort of just throwing our children into pagan influences with the assumption that, well, if they're truly converted, then they'll be able to resist temptation. But the problem here is the same. Yes, it is true, if our children come to Christ, if they are truly saved, then they will remain in Christ. But, like with conversion, God ordains the means of perseverance. And the active oversight and protection of God-fearing parents is one of the most important means that God has given to His chosen children to guide them through their sanctification. We need to be active in this as parents. We need to have a realistic assessment of the world in which we live. Our land is just as pagan as the land of Canaan. Perhaps it's a more sanitized paganism. We don't actually see altars and sacrifices to false gods in our land. But actually, that makes the paganism of our culture perhaps even more dangerous, more subtle. Maybe that's why we don't always recognize the danger of just blindly integrating our children into the paganism of this world. It's it's easier to miss the danger of the pagan influences in our day but they are all around us. Secularism is a pagan religion. It has influenced everything in our modern culture, entertainment and politics and education. There's no such thing as neutrality in the culture around us. 
All culture shapes us by the religious beliefs that are embedded in that culture. And the unbelieving culture around us has been profoundly shaped by beliefs and values that are contrary to our Christian faith. And each of these elements is what the New Testament calls the present evil age in which we live. It is working to actively undermine Christian values and Christian beliefs. Remember, this was the problem with the Ephraimites. They failed to separate themselves from the pagan world. That led to their downfall. This is exactly what Psalm 78 is talking about. At very least, we need to consider even our saved children as weaker brothers in our home. We need to protect them. We need to guide them. We need to teach them. We need to protect them from the stumbling blocks that would lead them into sin. But then a fourth way that we might hide God's wondrous works from our children is by not making sure that we bring our children to the church, integrating, faithfully integrating our children into the life of the church. Again, the primary responsibility has been given to us as parents, but nevertheless, if we as parents try to fulfill our responsibility by ourselves, we will ultimately fail. Keep in mind here that the commands in Psalm 78, they're given to parents, but they're given within the context of the community of Israel. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 5. He says, God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. In other words, yes, it was the parents' responsibility to tell the children God's law and his works, but these were laws and works given within the community of God's people. And so it is within the community of God's people that parents should bring up their children to know God. Remember, here we have a psalm that does exactly what it commands. It recounts the works of the Lord among his people. But, but notice who wrote this psalm recounting the history of Israel and, and in what form this history was given. This is a song. This is a song written by Asaph, one of the chief musicians serving in temple worship. This is a recounting of the works of the Lord meant to be passed on to the next generation, not only in the privacy of the home, but ultimately in the context of the community of Israel in the temple. When we remove our children from the community of God's people, in our day, the church, we are removing the necessary means that, that God has given us as parents to help us tell the next generation the wondrous deeds of the Lord. There is no better place for us to tell our children the wondrous deeds of the Lord than for them to witness and hear and experience the goodness and greatness of God in the local church. We need to raise up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord within the community of God's people, the local church. Let me make a comment here to those of you here this morning whose children have already left the home or perhaps you don't have children. This is part of your responsibility too. The parents in this congregation need your help. They need you to come alongside them and give them a word of, of, of encouragement and, and to help them, give them advice or give them counsel or give them feedback. You have, a, you have a significant role in the discipline and instruction of the Lord within this church, even if you don't presently have your own children in your homes. 
Now, up to this point, all of this warning that the psalmist gives has been fairly grim. He's warning and admonishing parents in the community not to hide the word of the Lord from their children lest they fall into destruction like Ephraim did. And that's a warning to us today as well. When we consider the world in which we live and the increasing paganism and hostility to Christianity all around us that seems to be growing at a rapid pace in our country today, and when we consider the fact that many of God's own people are giving into worldliness and are following the path that Ephraim followed and in integrating themselves into the pagan practices of this world, we might be tempted to despair. I mean, just think, if things continue in our world in the way that they are currently going, what sort of world is our, our, our grandchildren going to grow up in? That could cause us to worry and despair. But actually, the psalmist does not intend for us to despair. Yes, he warns us. Yes, he faithfully recounts the ways that Ephraim fell into destruction. But I want you to notice his aim. Notice what the psalmist's heart desire is in admonishing us to tell the next generation the wondrous deeds of the Lord. Look at verse 6. So that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Here Asaph lists several wonderful, hope-filled results that will come when parents and churches faithfully pass on God's word to their children. First, notice how Asaph describes the way that when we pass God's word on to our children, then that generation will come to know God's works, and that generation will then pass on the knowledge to the next generation, and so forth, and so on, and so on. It will establish a tradition of passing on the Lord's works to the next generation. This reminds me of Paul's admonition to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2 where he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is nurturing and cultivating a God-fearing tradition of passing on the works of the Lord to the next generation. This is a wonderful thing. This is the beauty and the power and the importance of taking what has been handed to us from our fathers and passing it to our children so that they then will pass it on to the children that come after them. This is the, the wondrous benefit of singing rich hymns that we have been, we've been given from our, our past and reading good books of theology from theologians of the past. We are taking what our fathers have passed on to us and now we are passing it on to our children. And when we faithfully tell our children the wondrous deeds of the Lord, not only does it create that sort of God-fearing tradition, but also, again, notice the result that Asaph gives in verse 7. So that they will set their hope on God and not forget the works of, the, of God, but keep His commandments. And I want you to notice something important about the way that Asaph describes this result. 
This result in verse 7 is really one result with three parts. Do you see that here? And what is, in, what is included in these results, in this sort of three-part result, is very important and instructive for us. Look at these results. Let's begin with the third one. They will keep God's commandments. That's really our goal, right? That our, that our children will keep God's commandments. We know that this is what will bring God most glory. We know that this is what will be best for our children. We want our children to glorify God with their lives. We want them to thrive and succeed. And we know that the only way that this will happen is if they obey God. Well, if you want them to obey God, then tell your children the wondrous works of the Lord. But what is necessary before they can obey God? Well, Asaph says the second benefit here, they will not forget the works of God. They will know God and His works. This is why it is critically important that we faithfully teach our children God's Word, who He is, what He has done, what He expects of them. If forgetting the works of God is what led to Ephraim's destruction, then we must be certain that that doesn't happen to our children. Let us tell them the works of God so that they will come to truly know God. But then notice that intellectual knowledge about God and His works and what He requires is not enough. What is the first benefit? Fueling everything is that our children will set their hope in God. This is critically important for us to remember when we seek to lead our children to Christ and to discipline them. We, we teach their minds and their wills. We teach them to know God and to obey God. Unless they know who God is and unless they know what He has done and what He expects, they cannot please Him. That's important. But we must be concerned ultimately with not just teaching our children's minds and wills, but also their hearts so that they will set their hope in God. Our hearts, the seats of our desires and our affections, that is what drives us to follow what we know in our heads. Our children may know who God is, they may know what God expects, but unless they love God, unless they desire to please God, unless they have their hope set in God, they will not follow God or obey Him. When all the pressures of life come, all of the temptations and allurements of the world come, if they have not set their hearts on God, they will not follow God. That is our ultimate goal. And it's not merely intellectual assent to God's truth or obedience out of duty that brings God glory. No. He is glorified when we and our children love God and have our hope set in Him. We absolutely must teach God's truth to our children's minds. We must teach them the Word of God, but we must also be sure to cultivate our children's hearts so that they might set their hope in Him. So how do we do that? How do we shape and mold our children's hearts? We know how to teach truth to our children's minds. We give them the Word of God. We preach the gospel to them. We read the Word of God to them. We explain the Word of God to them. Well, how do we lead them to hope in God? Well, this is one of the powerful functions of worship, both in our homes and in our churches. 
Worship helps us to set our own hope on God and also to help lead our children to set their hope on God. Of course, the didactic elements of our worship, the the scripture readings, the lyrics of our songs, the preaching, all of that helps to teach truth to our children's minds. But what we might call the aesthetic elements of our worship the poetry of our songs, the music, the instrumentation, the singing, all of that shapes and molds our hearts and shapes and molds our children's hearts. This is why we must give careful attention to the content of our worship, making sure that what we sing and what we say and the preaching and the reading is all the Word of God, but we must also be careful about how we worship, because how we worship in our homes and in our church shapes and molds not just our minds and our children's minds, but it shapes and molds our hearts and our children's hearts. This is why family worship is so important. Because in family worship at home and in making sure that our children are here at church hearing the word of God and worshiping, by by emphasizing that, we are making sure to pass on to our children the wondrous works of the Lord, not just intellectually and not just so that they will obey, but so that they will set their hope on God. Family worship is critically important. But then second, concerning ourselves with our children's hearts will mean that we will be careful to guard their hearts. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. There are so many things in this world that are shaping the hearts of our children in subtle ways that maybe we don't even recognize. The music we let them listen to, the movies we let them watch, the books we let them read, the friends we let them spend time with, all of these things are very subtly, gradually shaping our children's hearts. And so we must guard them. We must be careful about what we are allowing to influence and shape our children's hearts. Are we careful to guard them? Are we careful to protect them? You see, if we desire children who obey God then we must make sure that they know God and that they have their hearts set on God. And ultimately, this is what Asaph is after in Psalm 78. God has established a testimony for his people. He has appointed a law for his people, which he has commanded to our fathers, that we should make them known to our children, the psalmist says. Asaph doesn't want future generation of God's people to fall into destruction like Ephraim did. Rather, God wants us, and God wants future generations of God's people to hope in God and to experience the rich blessings of God, blessings like he granted to another tribe of Israel, the tribe of Judah. Look at the end of this psalm as we conclude in verse 68. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, He shepherded them and guided them 
with his skillful hand. What a hope-filled blessing. This can be true of us. This can be true of our families. This can be true of our children if we pass on to the next generation the wondrous deeds of the Lord. Unlike Ephraim, God loved and blessed the tribe of Judah. He rejected the tabernacle in Shiloh, but he built his sanctuary in Zion. He punished Ephraim's descendants, but he chose David, a son of Judah. He cut off Ephraim from leading his people, but he brought a son of Judah to feed his people. This is the kind of blessing promised for those who pass on to the next generation the wondrous deeds of the Lord. And most wonderfully of all, God brought the Messiah, the Savior of the world, a son of David and a son of Judah, to redeem his people from their sins. This is the message of hope that is extended to us today. Even in the midst of a darkening world that is, that is aiming its arrows at us as believers, what hope do we have? Our hope is the same that the people of Israel had. Our hope is in our children. If we pass on to them the wondrous deeds of the Lord, And this hope that is extended to us is that we and our children and their children yet unborn, our hope is that they would put their hope in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, son of David and son of Judah, and be blessed for all eternity. Let us give the the proper attention that that is communicated in this psalm to our children, to the children of this church, to the children of our families. Let us pass on to the next generation the wondrous deeds of the Lord so that they might put their hope in God. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you gave us this warning. We look at what happened to the tribe of Ephraim and ultimately to the entire nation of Israel, and that gives us concern. We look at the negative influences that they had to face in the pagan world around them. And that gives us concern, especially as our culture becomes less and less Christian and more and more pagan. What are we to do? But we praise you that you have given us psalms like this that give us hope and that tell us what we ought to do. And I pray that you would reaffirm in each heart in this congregation in the hearts of parents who still have little ones at home, in the hearts of parents whose children have left the home and are now starting their own families, to the hearts of young married couples who who do not yet have children but hope to have some soon, and to singles and other couples in this congregation who don't have any children. Please reaffirm in all of our hearts the importance that children are in the hope for the future. And give us a desire and a recommitment to make sure that in our homes and in our church that we are telling to the next generation your wondrous deeds, what you have done in our lives, what you have done through the course of history to redeem us from our sins. Help us to call our children to repentance. And then please do the work of redemption and sanctification in their hearts that only you can do. We pray this for your glory 
and for the hope of your people in the generations to come. In Christ's name.